you have your Bible, and I pray, hope, and encourage that you do bring your Bible with you to church. It's a necessity as we study God's Word together in a corporate setting. I ask that you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I am going to begin our time in Hebrews 11 as we begin to look at the examples of faith throughout the Old Testament. Now, one of the things I've often heard this text or this chapter preached as the the hall of faith, which is a a play on words, a baseball play on words uh, going with the hall of fame. But but I think as I've studied and as I've continued to grow in my relationship with God and as I've studied his word, I think there's more to that. Uh, I don't think this is a, a, a necessarily a text on hall of faithers. Uh, yes, I used the same word play there. Uh, it is actually a text designed to show us examples of how faith works. And it's designed to show us examples of how faith works so that we can see how faith is supposed to work in our lives as well. So I'm not saying that if they've used it as the hall of faith before that they're wrong. I'm just saying that there's actually more to it than that. And the question that I want to pose to you this morning, if you're, a, if you're a follower of Jesus, my question for you today is this. When you die and people look back on your life, would they consider you part of the people who are given as examples in Hebrews 11? In fact, I, the question maybe to be reworded is this. When people look back on your life, do they see a life that is designed by your faith in Jesus to please God and give him everything that you have? So today, we're going to take a look at verses 1 and 2. And then from verses 1 and 2, we're going to dive into four examples of faith on display into chapter 7. So read with me just very quickly verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to kind of dive into what the author is teaching us And the people during this time this morning. Verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. Now really quickly let's look at what we learned last week. About the audience that this author is writing to. The audience that this author is writing to was a. It it was. They were going through some struggles. They were going through some persecution because of their, their faith in Jesus. So last week, Pastor Kyle showed us in Hebrews chapter 10 that they were enduring struggles and afflictions. And the reason for their struggles and afflictions came because they put their faith in Jesus. Following Jesus cost these people a lot. Not only that, some of them were being publicly expo- exposed to reproach. They were dealing with afflictions. Some of them were even being sent to prison for their faith in Jesus. Not only that, it also shows us that the text shows us that they were also their property was being plundered. What that means is let's just pretend like that would be like the government coming to you this morning and be like, we're taking your house. Now, in Texas, that is not you don't want to do that, right? That won't fly here. But that's, but that's exactly what's happened. These people are, are being plundered. They're going through some severe persecution. And at the end of last week, the author of Hebrews in verse 39 says this. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. In other words, our faith causes us to persevere in the midst of. Of our life circumstances. 
faith is a, is a part of our lives as Christians that helps us to live the Christian life today, no matter what we might experience. So one of the things that I asked of this text when I began to study it from looking back, so it, it, think about how you would feel if somebody came and said, I'm taking your, I'm taking your stuff. But look at the people here in verse 34 of chapter 10. He says, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So if somebody came today and took your house, would you be like, I joyfully accept you coming and taking my house. Where, where does this profound joy come from? Why are they able to respond in this way in the midst of persecution? And it's because of their faith. Look what it says at the end here. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you see what their faith rested in? Their faith rested in Jesus. They understood that the value of Jesus surpasses anything of value on this earth. Whether that be material or relationships. Jesus is the object of their faith. And I'm going to argue this morning that Jesus should be the object of our faith as well. So what I want you to take away today is this. I want you to take away that an active faith. If you're taking notes, this is what you write down. An active faith leads to an active life that seeks to glorify God. An active faith leads to an active life that seeks to glorify God. And that's because of our relationship with Jesus. You and I have to understand that the basis and the object of our faith is Christ himself. Over and over again, up until this point in the letter, that is all the author has tried to show us. The supremacy of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus. And when you and I begin to understand and our faith is ignited to understand the beauty and the goodness and the grace of Jesus. It's at that point that our faith is not only ignited, but it is enlivened. Over and over again, for example, in Hebrews ten fourteen, the author says, For by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Hebrews seven twenty five. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. From the very beginning, Hebrews 1, verses 3 and 4. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than there. So when we look at verse 11, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 1, we have to understand from the beginning that the object of their faith and the object of our faith is Jesus himself. And that truth causes these two things. Look what it says in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith 
is the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith in Christ changes the way that we see the world. Faith in Christ changes the way we live in the world as followers of Jesus. But faith, as we see here in this text, is essential, is an essential element to the perseverance of God's people. Faith is how we persevere in the world, even as the world wants to attack us for it. So let me put it to you in this way. Faith is active in that it makes you live an active life for Jesus. John Piper, in his sermon, he talked about this. He said, faith is this. It, 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 it makes us the type of people who know there is one life to live. And only what's done in the name of Christ and for the eternal good of others will count in the end. In other words... As our faith is activated, we live for Jesus in a way that we seek His glory no matter what it costs. And let me tell you, throughout history, throughout history, it has cost us greatly to take the name of Jesus to others. But why do we do it? Why did the people of old do it? Well, because they had faith in Jesus. They had faith in the Trinitarian God of the Bible. And out of their faith, they had assurance of things hoped for. And they had a conviction of things not seen. F.F. Bruce talks about this in his commentary very clearly. I think it's a, it's a sentence worth resonating in as we get ready to dive into the examples of the people of faith in Hebrews 11. This is what he says. He says, their faith consisted simply in taking God at his word. And directing their lives accordingly. Things yet future, as far as their experience went, were thus present to faith. And things outwardly unseen were visible to the inward eye. I, I, I want to push back on a notion that sometimes gets thrown around in our Christian culture. And that is the notion of blind faith. Well, you just got to have faith and follow Jesus blindly. I don't think that's in the text. In fact, the text says... Faith is the conviction of things not seen, which means that you see the things that are unseen. And I'm going to talk about this in a minute when we get to the resurrection of Jesus. And so faith is not something blindly. What it is, 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 is faith is an active agent within us that the Holy Spirit ignites within us that causes us to believe in God's promises. Even the promises that are to come, we believe in them as if they were happening today, but also to trust God in the future. Knowing, as Christians, that even though our world seems out of control, God is completely in control. Right? So we follow God according to His Word. We follow God trusting in Him based off of what we've seen Him do in His Word and what we've seen Him do in Christ. And we live our lives as if those future promises, those future hopes, those convictions of the things that we have yet to see are happening right now. N.T. Wright says it the best. He says this, faith is looking at God and trusting Him for everything. Looking at God and trusting Him for Everything. So our faith should do the same. 
Your faith, be encouraged this morning that your faith should look at God and trust him as you live your life today. So I'll say it once again so that you, I make sure that you get it. The object of our faith is God himself. And the access we have to God through the son by the presence of his spirit. So let me show you then what faith produces in you. So that's the first thing. What does faith produce in us? So I don't think uh, I would disagree with anybody who argues that Hebrews 11, 1 is a definition of faith. I do not believe that this is a definition of faith, because as I studied faith this week, I'm like, there's actually a lot more to that definition than this verse. But what I think that the author is showing us in verse one is that this is the product of faith. This is what faith does. This is the actions of. That faith produces in us as people. First off, what does it do? It gives us the assurance of things hoped for. It gives us the assurance, the confidence, the trust of things hoped for. So, for example, before Christ, I used to always wonder, what happens when I die? Is there life beyond the grave? The great unknown, right? And so I began to, before my Christian walk, I began to say, well, perhaps, perhaps there is life beyond the grave. And I hoped that there was, but I didn't know. I didn't have the assurance that there was. But when I met Jesus, I finally saw, yes, there is. And my perhaps went from perhaps there is to permanence. There is life beyond the grave. And the only life that comes beyond the grave is through Jesus. So, for example, think about this. Do you remember the story of Lazarus? So here's Lazarus. Lazarus is Jesus's buddy. Uh, Lazarus dies and he's put into a tomb and Jesus shows up three days later and Martha runs up to him and she's like, oh, Jesus, if only you were here when my brother was sick and dying, if only you were here. And, And Jesus turns to Martha, I believe, with grace and love. And he says this, Martha. I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he looks at Martha, I believe with compassion, and he says, do you believe this? What Jesus is showing us here is the assurance of things that are hoped for. I no longer think perhaps I will live again when I die. I know I will. Why? Because I put my faith in Jesus who says, I'm the resurrection and the life. So when you believe in Jesus, your faith is ignited. You're assured of that hope. And I believe today with all permanence that when I die, I'm going to live abundant life with the Lord forever and ever. I don't have to worry about it. It's not a perhaps in my mind as a Christian. Because when I look and see the empty tomb of Jesus, I know that there is life beyond the grave because he defeated it. He defeated death for me. And therefore, when I look at that empty tomb, I know without a shadow of a doubt that there is hope in life beyond the grave. That's what faith produces. It moves us from perhaps to permanence. But look at the second thing here. It gives us a conviction of things not seen. This word conviction can also go along with the Greek word assurance in this text. It's a, it's a confidence that we have. In other words, what I see is my faith allows me to see the unseeable. 
For example, let's say, for example, that a doctor comes to me and a doctor says, Jeremy, uh, you, you have, you have a, a disease, you know, like diabetes. And I'm like, wow, okay, how do I know that you're telling me the truth, right? If you ever go to the doctor and they tell you something, what are you going to say? Prove it. I don't see it. I don't feel it. Perhaps you better prove it. I need to start seeing some tests. The only way that I know a doctor is telling me the truth is if I have a broken bone and my arm is broken. And he's like, Jeremy, you have a broken bone. I'm like, the evidence is there, doc. But those internal ones, right? I don't know. And so what I do is he's going to prove it to me. He's going to show me a test. But I want you to understand that what faith is, is faith is not an active test. In terms of showing me the truth. Faith is an active agent that allows me to believe without seeing. That's why I believe that faith is actually ignited by the Holy Spirit. Think of it in terms of Thomas. Now, by the way, I think the church today gives Thomas a bad name. Doubting Thomas. Like you never doubt. Let's just run around and just call everybody. Instead of Brother Jeremy, just call me Doubting Jeremy, right? Poor Thomas always gets a bad name. Have you ever seen a resurrected person? Well, neither had Thomas at that point in his life. Thomas finds out that Jesus has been resurrected and he says, well, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. Not just see it. I'm going to feel it. I want to see his hand, the holes and his where the, the, the nails were. And I want to put my finger there and I want to put my, my hand into his side where the spear went when he was on the cross. Then I will believe. And I believe Jesus is so gracious to doubters. Jesus shows up. He says, here I am, Thomas. Here, go ahead. Put your hand there. Put your hand here. Thomas says, I believe. I've seen and touched with my own hands the resurrected Jesus. And then Jesus makes this claim that I think is meant for you and me. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, I think this is where the Holy Spirit begins to ignite our faith to believe in what we can't see. We may never have the experience like Thomas did back in the New Testament's Gospels, but we can experience and believe in Jesus today. That He is alive, that He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, just like the author of Hebrews has told us about over and over again, that we can believe that Jesus is alive and sitting there because the Holy Spirit has ignited our faith. And so what we can't physically see, the, the organ of faith allows us to believe and see. I believe Active faith produces an active sight. And we're going to see that here in verse 3 in just a moment, where we're going to see something that was something we can't see. We never will be able to see be done, but actually be done. So the idea here is that we have assurance. We have confidence in Christ. We have assurance. We have a confidence in God and His Word. We have assurance and confidence and trust that God is taking care of things now. We have assurance and confidence in the promises that God made to us throughout His Word. So, last thing I want to show you in verse 2 is that faith, if you're taking notes, here you go, faith is the prerequisite to fruit. Faith is the prerequisite to fruit. And I think this is what the author wants us to make sure we understand before he starts throwing out the examples. Verse 2. For it, for by it, that it there is faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now, 
What he's trying to show us here is that the people of old did not receive commendation because of their work. They received commendation because they put their faith to work. And if we get that backwards, we are going to completely distort the gospel. The gospel does not say, do works and then you'll get faith. The gospel says, faith leads to doing good works. And that's how we please God. We don't please God by saying, well, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to do this more. So then God will accept me. My faith in Jesus, because God has accepted Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf. And so my faith in Jesus is the reason God accepts me. But it's my faith in Jesus that makes me begin to work for God. James says this very clearly in James chapter 2. Someone will say to you, you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works. He says, because I will show you my faith, what? By my works. The people of the Old Testament, it was their faith that allowed them to produce these works, which they are commended for in Hebrews 11. It's not backwards. So now that we understand that this is not a works-based salvation... It's a faith-based salvation that leads to works. Now we're going to look at four examples of faith to help us to understand what the author has just taught us in verses 1 and 2. How this type of faith, how our active faith leads to an active life that seeks to glorify God. Again, I will ask you, if you're a Christian, are these examples a description of your faith? Do you fall into the category of the Abels and the Enochs and the Noahs? And so I believe these examples are a means by which the, the author wants us to evaluate our walk with God. He wants us to evaluate what our faith looks like. Do we have an active faith that leads to an active life that seeks to glorify God with all of it? So the first faith claim that he makes is this. Faith makes us believe in the creator of all creation. So faith makes us believe that there is a creator who made creation. Look at verse 3. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. I, I, I always think of Job when I read that. Remember when Job's complaining to God? And, and God looks at Job and he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Oh, you weren't there because I hadn't created you yet. Did you forget who I am? Did you forget I'm the, the mastermind and creator of the universe? And, and so we see here that it's by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. In other words, we were not there when God created it. Now we have a recording of it in Genesis 1, but we weren't there at the beginning of creation. Because at the beginning, before creation even existed, the only thing that existed was the Trinitarian God in perfect unity amongst himself. And out of his love and grace, he decided to create he didn't have a need that he was trying to fill. He created out of his grace and his love. He's like, I got to share myself with more people. And he does this specifically how? The universe was created by the what? The word of God. This reminds me of C.S. Lewis's uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. And one of those books is The Magician's Nephew. And when Aslan comes on the scene and he begins to, he begins to uh, uh, create, he does so by singing. And as he's singing, things begin to pop up. And I'm like, that's a beautiful picture. I wonder if God was singing as he was creating, right? 
Actually, some people think that Genesis 1 is a poem that actually he was probably singing when he created. It doesn't matter. What matters is that he created using only his words. God said, and what happened? It was. It did it. Have you ever created something with simply your words besides chaos? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Like a physical structure. Wouldn't it be great if you could though, right? But here's the problem. Here's the problem with our sinfulness. I believe that Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is one of the most offensive verses in all of Scripture. One of the most offensive verses in all of Scripture. You know why? Because when God creates, that means God is sovereign. That means God has authority. That means God has designed it His way. And creation is supposed to fall into his design. That means God created morals embedded in the fabric of creation that we are to follow. And when you don't follow his creation, we don't follow his moral design, it leads to sin, which ends up leading to disruption and brokenness in your life and in my life. And so Genesis 1 is a very offensive word because that means that somebody actually is in control over us. And listen, in our American context, we do not like authority. Right? If you're a teacher in here and you're getting ready for spring bake, you know what I'm talking about. Just go ask any of our teachers. They will be glad or ask a cop. Authority is not something that we just like, oh yeah, I'm just hoping somebody will just take control today. What do you want me to do? So what we do then as sinful people is in order to get away from God's control, what we do is we try to pretend that there is no God who created. And this is not something new to our own worldview. It's not something new to the modern man. Athanasius, who was one of the early church fathers on his book on the incarnation, I would highly recommend it to you. It's only 66 pages. On the incarnation, he talks about this idea of the creation. And during his time in the fourth century, he was fighting off the Epicureans, the Platonists, and the Gnostics. And these are the same battles that we are fighting today against the evolutionists, the scientific theorists, and the atheists. The idea is that if I can remove God from creation, from any type of creative account, that there is no God, then I can live my way however I want to because now I become the creator of my life. So to remove God from creation is to blind ourselves to his sovereignty and his control. But as believers, our faith activates within us to say, no, I wasn't there when God created. But when I read Genesis 1 and 2, I know how he created and I believe that's the way it was. Think of it like this. Um, Katie and I used to have this sweet little dog boxer named Sydney. Uh, Sydney was a boxer. We had her since she was a puppy and she was probably... Don't tell our other dogs this, but our favorite dog ever. Way better than Griffin. But I had control over Sydney. We didn't have any kids at the time either. So I had control over Sydney. So I told Sydney where to go. I told Sydney what to do. I told her when to eat. I told her when to go outside. But Sydney kind of thought she was a princess. And it made sense because we kind of spoiled her like a fur baby princess. And she didn't like to get her princess paws wet. So when it was dewy outside, she's like, I ain't going outside and going to the bathroom. You crazy, man. I'm not putting my paws in that dew water. Seriously, like she would prance around when I'd send her out there. So when she knows that I was taking her out in the mornings, what she would do is I would walk into the room 
She laid in our bed. At one point, we had two big old boxers laying in our bed. That was way before, before we had children. And so we walked in. And I would walk in and she would close her eyes. Pretend that she was asleep and pretend that I couldn't see her. She's like, if I can't see him, then he won't make me do what I don't want to do, which is go outside and get my paws wet, my princess paws wet. But just because she closed her eyes and pretended I wasn't there doesn't mean I wasn't there still. But I think so many times what we we see in our world is that people, they just want to close their eyes. Pretend like there is no God. Pretend like there's no creator. Pretend like there's no design that God created, that a supreme being created the world that we live in or the moral fabric of the world that we live in. And so we close our eyes, we blind ourselves like Sydney, and we say, I'm not going to, I'm just going to pretend that you're not there so I can do what I want to do. And as believers, as believers, we turn and we say, no, actually, even though we not, we were not there when God created the world, we believe by faith. We have assurance of this. We have a conviction that God created the word world with simply his words. But notice what else he says here. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, God created in our doctrine in the Latin, it's called ex nihilio, which actually means God created out of nothing. God is not a craftsman. He is a creator. That's Athanasius, by the way. So I give him credit, even though he's not watching this. He's a craftsman. He doesn't need material to create. He just does it out of nothing. That shows his sovereignty and his power. That shows that he is not limited. To, to, to think in our minds that God needed something to create from actually puts a limitation on God himself. It puts a limitation on his power and his capabilities. And I want to be the first to tell you, if you've not heard this, God has no limitations. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. And so while we can't create using our words, God can. And God did. This is designed to show us, to put our faith on display, to show us in who God is as our creator. And it's designed to show us who he is as our sovereign and authoritative Lord over all creation. And as a believer, doesn't that bring you comfort in a world of chaos? It brings me comfort to know that we have a God who is in control, even though we live in the midst of the chaos. Because he is sovereign over his creation. And through Jesus, he has decided to redeem his creation for his glory. Number two, faith makes us trust in God's provision. Faith makes us trust in God's provision. The next, the next person or the very first example of faith is in verse four. Read with me. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. He still speaks in that we see his story recorded for us under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the goodness of God in Genesis chapter 4. So what is taking place here? Abel was a worker of sheep and Cain was a worker of the land. In verse 4 of Genesis 4, it says this. Or excuse me, in verse 3 of Genesis 4, it says this. Cain, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now that, that word, in the course of time, it means at the end of days. So my interpretation of Genesis 4 is that Cain, who is the worker of the land, he gets done with the harvest. And when he gets done with the harvest, he looks at all he has. And in the course of time, he says, okay, how much of that can I give to God? 
I'm going to give to God specifically out of my abundance. But notice what Abel does. Abel gives the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So what Abel does as a worker of the sheep, he gets the firstborn and he doesn't know what's coming next. He doesn't know how much longer God's going to open the wombs of those lambs and those sheep. And so what he does is, I don't care. I am trusting God to provide for the rest. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this firstborn lamb and I'm going to give it to God as the first and the best that I have to offer him. And I'm going to trust God to provide me for what I need for the rest of it. That's the difference between Abel's offering and Cain's offering. It's an idea that that Abel says, I trust you, Lord, which faith is trust. I trust you, Lord, to take care and provide for me even after I give you my first and my best. It's an idea of sacrificially giving to God. And this is the way that Christians should be. We should trust in God's provisions. That means that we sacrificially use our time, our talents, and our treasures for the glory of God, knowing that He owns it all anyway. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. If He created it, He owns it. He just puts it on loan to us. And so the idea here is that what we see our faith do is our faith makes us trust in God's provision. We trust in God's provision, not only in our futures, but also in our presence. Are not presents, present. And so my faith, like their faith, is willing to sacrificially and joyfully accept the plundering of my property. Because I know God's still going to provide. And God specifically has provided for me the most, not in my possessions, but in my salvation, which found in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, listen, the gospel is a gospel of generosity. God sent His Son... To live the life that you and I couldn't live. So that he could go to the cross and take the death that we deserve to die. And resurrected. And today God offers his son to you as a gift. That is generosity. You didn't earn Jesus. Jesus gave himself to you. And you cling out and reach on to him by faith. And therefore if God is that kind of generous God. Then how generous should we be as his people? Do we trust in God's provision? Does that mean we, we give ourselves sacrificially, not just our, our possessions or our treasures, but we give ourselves sacrificially in our time and our talents so that we can continue to glorify God and bring more people to Him? You see, I believe, like Abel, that our faith allows us to release the grip of possessions so that we can cling more fully to the author and perfecter of our faith, King Jesus. So again, an act of faith leads to an act of life that seeks to glorify God. And this is even represented in our finances, in our time, what we do with our time, and what we do with the gifts that God has given us. Number three, faith makes us desire to please God. Faith makes us desire to please God. Look at verses five and six. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, the author says, it is impossible to please him. Do you know what that word impossible means in the original language? Impossible. Without faith, it is impossible for you to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe first that he exists and that he rewards those who seek 
him. Now, we got to do something very quickly here because um, many of us may not be familiar with Enoch. I don't know if you know this. We live in a culture of biblical illiteracy. To give you a point of what I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, our family decided to dress up like Noah and his ark. All right. So I had my Noah outfit on. Katie was the rainbow symbolizing the covenant that God had made with Noah about the promises. And then we had a lot of animals running around, but we dressed them up too. We dressed them up too. And every time we went to the Greenville Zoo, we would go into the Greenville Zoo and people would come up to me and they were like, okay, wait a minute. Rainbow, I see you with the staff. Um, Moses? Nope. Good try. I'm actually Noah. They're like, okay, Noah. Uh, he was the one that led the people out of Egypt? Nope. That's Moses. Noah was the one that built the ark and did the animals. And they're like, oh yeah. And it was a great opportunity for us to share the gospel with people. That way they would come up and look at our families portrait of Noah and his family. And, and the idea was that what I realized was that people just don't know their Bibles and that's okay. We got to continue to study and learn it. So many of you may not know who Enoch is. So therefore, let me give you a quick history of Enoch. We find Enoch in between the genealogies of Adam, who was the first human being and Noah who built the ark and put the animals on it. And God sent the floods And there's not very much written about Enoch in the genealogies other than he lived to be 365 years old. He was old. But in that genealogy, over and over again, when we look at the genealogy throughout that particular chapter, after each person it said, then he died, then he died, then he died. One day I want to preach a sermon here on the he died passages. Not today. I get pumped about that one. He died. But when you get to Enoch... This is what it says in Genesis. The Bible says he was not found for God took him. Hebrews brings us more to an understanding. Verse five, he was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. In other words, many scholars, myself included, believe that Enoch was taken into heaven and he did not die. He did not physically die. You may say, Jeremy, how does that work? I'm not sure you need to ask Jesus. The point, though, is very clear. God took Enoch, God took Enoch up without dying. And the reason is very clear. Before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Man, I always ask the question. When people look back on your life, what are they going to say about you? Would that be their description? Man, Jeremy, he, he, he lived a life that just pleased God. I would say, well, Jeremy was all about himself. Jeremy was all about fame and fortune. Jeremy was all about whatever. Maybe they may not say anything. Maybe nobody's there. Except for my family. But is that descriptive of our life? Does our faith lead to an active life that people look and say, man, that person is designed. They're living a life that is designed to please God. One of the ways that Enoch pleased God was he lived a righteous life in the midst of a corrupt society. Can you can you relate? Number two, also, Enoch proclaimed the message of God in that corrupt society. Jude chapter uh, not. There's no chapters in Jude. It's all verses. Jude 14 and 15 reads this. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones 
to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch's faith not only caused him to live for Jesus, it caused him to proclaim Jesus. Judgment is coming. Repent. Turn to Jesus. Enoch's faith led him towards proclamation. And so I would, I would argue for you this morning that, the, that your level of proclamation is relevant to your level of faith. For example, one of my favorite missionaries of all time is the guy by the name of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson is my all-time favorite missionary. He lived between 1788 and 1850. And one of his letters that he wrote to his future father-in-law is still highly regarded among missionaries today. So this would be like a future spouse of Avery or Adeline, one of our daughters, coming to me and saying, Hey, I want to marry your daughter and here's a letter that tells you all these questions why if you should let me marry her. So let me let me read let me read this to you really quickly. This is his letter to his future father-in-law. And I want you to ask where does this come from? I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land or her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, and perhaps to even a violent death. How many of you are like, that's my future son-in-law. Praise Jesus. But here's where it comes to the point. Here's where you see his faith on display. A faith that says, I am willing to surrender everything, even my own life, for the proclamation of the gospel to the nations. And he says this to her father-in-law in in the form of a question. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing immortal souls. For the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this? And here's his faith. Remember, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? And then here's the conviction of things not seen. With a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise. Which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. In a follow-up letter to Anne on January 1st, 1811, he ended his letter with these words. We shall probably experience seasons when we shall be exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. We shall see many dreary, disconsolate hours and feel a sinking of spirits, anguish of mind of which now we can form little conception. But in view of such scenes, shall we not pray with earnestness? Oh, for an overcoming faith. You see, faith produces assurance in things hoped for. Conviction of things not seen. Faith causes within us to live a life completely surrendered to Jesus, willing to do anything and everything He tells us to proclaim His name to the nations, even if that means losing our sons, our daughters, or even our own lives. Because faith says, 
In the end, she's going to be with her Savior. And in the end, she's going to receive her crown of glory. And it's not going to come because of what she did. It's going to become because of those people who gave their lives to Jesus in her ministry are going to be singing praises to the Savior right alongside with her. That's what faith does. Faith leads you to surrender everything to the one who gave it all for you. And proclaim him no matter the cost. So again I ask. As a follower of Jesus at your funeral. What are they going to say about you? Well he or she really lived a life that pleased God. Or he or she really really lived a life that was comfortable and pleased themselves. Enoch is an example of a life lived to please God. Because it's a life that understands what God has done for you truly in the Savior. Lastly, and then we're done. Faith trusts God's word and acts upon them. Noah, verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen and reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Listen, God comes to Noah in Genesis 6 and he says this. He says, I have determined... To make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he tells Noah, he says, Noah, I need you to go build me an ark of gopher wood. Now, could you imagine that family meeting or that family dinner? Noah walks in. He's like, hey guys, let's all get together real quick. I just want you to let you know, um, God, God spoke with me today. He's going to destroy the whole earth. Everybody. And he's going to do it with a flood. But he asked me to build a boat. Not like a little 10-foot boat. I'm talking about an ark. Oh, and by the way, every single animal on the planet is going to join us on this journey. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, uh, tomorrow, get your work gloves on and we're going to start building an ark of gopher wood. And what, you, what do you think? Maybe he was a classic Enneagram 7, just the dreamer. And like, oh, Noah, you're just a dreamer. But then what does he do the next day? He goes out and he starts building. He believed in God's word. When God said it, Mo, uh, Moses, Noah believed it. Greenville, South Carolina, you're getting to me. Noah believed it. And not only did he believe it, it caused him to believe it in a way that he actually did something with it. He went out and built an ark. No matter how crazy that was. Two times in Genesis do we read these words. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. You see, the idea here as a Christian is that faith causes us to believe in the promises of God's word and to act on those promises in the present. So, for example, really quickly, for an example, let's say that you're in here this morning and you're going through a particular situation. Maybe you've got news of a disease that you have or disease that somebody else has. Maybe you're dealing with a wayward child. Maybe you're a single person in this room who feels the loneliness of being living the single life. And then what you should do in those moments is you need to trust in God's promises. Specifically trust in Matthew 28, 20. Where Jesus says, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Trust and rest in God's promises that no matter what you are going through right now, no matter what you went through last week, no matter what you're about to go through this week, trust and live in the promise that Jesus is with you through it all. That's what Noah did. That is Noah's example. 
He heard God's promises. He trusted in God's promises. And he lived his life in accordance with those promises. No matter how foolish or crazy it sounded. I don't plan to go home today to Katie and be like, hey, we're going to build a boat. Because God told me this is what's going to happen. But I do plan to go and continue to share with our family and you that God said he's going to come and he is going to he has provided in Jesus a way to save all peoples from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And that faith causes and acts us to go and to share the gospel with as many people as possible. But listen, some of you in here, you might be feeling the guilt and shame of your past sins. Those sins that you walked in today wondering if they were truly forgiven. Wondering if God could really save you from what you have done in the past. And I want to remind you of God's promise that that if that creeps into your mind. I want to remind you of the promise that Jesus made to us through his word. He says this, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. I want to remind you that if you walked in here carrying the guilt and the weight of your sin, I want to remind you that Jesus paid it all on that cross. So that you can lead today trusting in the promise that your sin has been forgiven in Christ. So I have two responses for two different people in this room. Number one, if you're here today and you have never put your faith in Jesus, today's the time. I'm praying and we've been praying that the Holy Spirit would ignite your faith. That the blinders of your heart would be removed so that you would have the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That you would believe and trust in the work of Jesus on your behalf. It reminds me of a story. This is, if this is you, it reminds me of a story of a university professor. This university professor, he got up on stage and he began to give all the reasons and very eloquent speech of why he doesn't believe in God. And at the end of his speech, he looked to his audience and he said, does anybody here want to refute what I just said? An older gentleman from the back who cleaned the classrooms after each day of class, he walked forward and he pulled out an apple out of his pocket he took a bite and he said, can you tell me how this apple tastes? The professor said, how can I tell you how it tastes? I haven't eaten it myself. He said, that's right. The reason you don't believe in God is because you have not tasted and seen that he is good. You have not tasted and seen that Jesus lived the life you couldn't live. Died the death you deserve to die and resurrected to prove he defeated your sin and death. All because he loves you. But the moment you taste and see that he is good, and that this is true, your faith will be activated and you will believe in the God you just sought to refute. That's you today. If God is pressing upon your heart, today is the day that you have tasted and seen this Jesus. Then I want you to come talk to me right after service or come talk to Pastor Kyle right after service. And so today, today I'm giving my life to this Jesus and I'm going to begin to walk by faith clinging to him the rest of my days but if you are a believer here this morning I want you to examine yourself do you have an active faith that leads to an active life which seeks to glorify God do you have a faith that says I believe in the creator of all creation I believe and trust in God's provisions I desire to please God and I trust God's word in such a way that I act upon those words. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Take a moment right now to honestly assess yourself. If you died today, or if you were taken into heaven like Enoch, 
Would people add your name to this list of examples? Would they say, let me tell you about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Jeremy. Whose faith brought assurance and conviction. That led him to lead a life. That followed Jesus no matter the cost. As you deal with yourself this morning under the conviction of the spirit. If you really feel that your faith is questioned or fumbling. And this week or today, I want you to come talk to Kyle or myself or your MC leader about your struggles, about your doubts, about your walk with Jesus. I want to remind everyone, this is a safe place where it's a it's okay to not be okay. But it's also a place where we don't want you to stay there for too long. We want to see your faith grow today because we want to see you be used by God for the glory of his name the advancement of his kingdom. So you take a few moments now and you let the Lord deal with you in any of those ways. Father God, I don't know how you're working in the lives of people in this room through your word. But I pray two things. I pray that someone in this room, that their faith would be ignited this morning for the first time ever. By your grace and your goodness. And number two, some of us in this room, as we look at the faith in our own lives, may it be further activated to live an active life that seeks to glorify your name no matter the cost. So Father, we thank you that our faith is not attached to our feelings. Our faith is attached to Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, empowered by the Spirit for the glory of your name. So Father, I pray that as we get ready to leave this place, you would use us in any way that you see fit to bring people to Jesus and to live a life that shows our faith in Jesus. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're going to go into a time of communion. We're going to all come forward and there's grape juice in the bread which symbolizes the body and the blood of Jesus on the cross. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to Christ, then you're in good standing with your church. Even if you're a guest, we invite you to this table. But if you're not a believer, 
then we ask that you refrain, not because we want to make fun of you or ostracize you, but because this means something to us as believers. It's a symbol of our faith. We ask that you come talk to us about it, or if the Lord has ignited your faith, that we would share with you what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and we would tell you your next steps of discipleship, and then the next time we come, you would join us as a brother or sister in Christ. So at this time, you come, grab the elements, go to your seat, and we will take them together as a family.